Now I don't think that too many people would disagree with me if I said that from a Christian perspective these times in which we live are very strange times. You only have to have lived into middle years. You don't have to be an elderly person to realize that in Western society at least there have been in the last several decades profound and radical and we had, I think legitimately use the word revolutionary changes. In many ways these are alarming times. They are disconcerting times. They are frightening times in many ways. And I believe personally that Christians or to endeavor to understand as best they can the times in which they live. I think that Christians ought to be people who know what's happening, who uh, listen to the news and read the newspapers and so forth, and then seek to understand the times in which they're living. Now, in the Old Testament book of First Chronicles, a book that perhaps is not read too often by too many Christians and church-going people, but in the book of First Chronicles chapter 12, we have a record of the various groups who comprised David's army. King David, in his uh, younger years, as uh, he is before us here in these chapters of First Chronicles, gathering his army together, really just moving into the very height of his great career and the various contingents that made up his army are listed for us. Some of the people that made up David's army came from the tribe of Issachar and there is a statement about the people of Issachar in verse 32 of chapter 12 of First Chronicles that I want you to note. 1 Chronicles 12 and verse 32. It's a very fascinating statement. It has intrigued me for many years. It says, Of the children of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. Their chiefs were 200, and all their brethren were at their command. Two things are said of the people of Issachar, the tribe of Issachar. First, they had understanding of their times. And secondly, they had an understanding of what was needed, what Israel ought to do. Now, as I say, I believe uh, very earnestly that Christians ought to try at least to understand these times in which we live from a biblical perspective and that we ought to try and understand what we as Christians ought to do in the light of these times. And I'm going to suggest three things to you this morning with respect to these times in which we live, each of which have, again, three things under them. So I'm saying a lot to you this morning. I want you to uh, gird up the loins of your mind, as the Apostle Peter might say, to fasten the seatbelt of your mind, as a 20th century person might say perhaps, and follow me. I want to suggest to you that in these times we have, first of all, a revelation of what human nature is truly like apart from the grace of God. In the days in which we are living, we have a revelation of what human nature is truly like apart from the grace of God. 
Now, our century has been dominated, the 20th century, by a broad and liberal philosophy that has told us that human nature is basically good. In the latter part of the 19th century, it's important for us to understand that revolutions took place within Christian denominations. You know, it's a, it's a shame that so, a lot of people uh, agree with Henry Ford that history is bunk. History is anything but bunk. Uh, if, uh, as one person has said it, we don't understand the past, we are doomed to repeated failures. And if we don't understand the past, we really don't understand the present. And it's important for us to understand that revolutions took place in the Christian denominations uh, are around the time of the latter part of the last century. Many of the old doctrines that were formulated in the confessions of faith were repudiated in this period of history. The old teachings that the forefathers had strongly emphasized were reviled. They became to be sneered at and they were rejected and among them was the doctrine of original sin the teaching that human nature was in fact corrupt at its core and depraved this was declared to be an abhorrent teaching it was said to be monstrous and it could not be allowed to continue <coughs> in what was thought of as an age of enlightenment and so this was thrown out the new teaching assured people that human nature was indeed basically good and that things were going to get better and better and that we had great optimism within the camp and even though two world wars in this century have shaken the confidence of those old liberals and have really brought discredit upon many of their ideas yet even today still that idea which came up in force in the latter part of the 19th century still very much dominates that human nature is basically good and that people at heart are basically fine and good people certainly they're not all that they ought to be human nature isn't all that it ought to be certainly it needs refining certainly it needs civilizing certainly it needs education that of course is the great thing of our day certainly it needs these things but at base it's good and so we hear people speaking about their faith in human nature. We hear people talking about having the uh, faith restored in people. And we hear people declaring in editorials and news comments and so on the doctrine that basically human nature is good. Now I believe that in our day we are being given a demonstration of the fallacy of that doctrine, the mythology of that teaching. For what we are seeing is not that human nature is good, but that apart from the grace of God, both special grace and even common grace, as the theologians put it, human nature is first of all rebellious against God, in essence. It is rebellious against God. We will never understand our times, I don't believe, unless we believe and understand the biblical doctrine that men and women are in rebellion against their creator. We will never fathom the mysteries of the happenings of our age until we understand that, that we are part of a race in rebellion against its creator. Unpleasant though that doctrine might be, we won't understand our world without it. 
This is the most fundamental fact of human reality and of the human condition that human nature is in revolt against its God and Maker. When scientists declare that there is no God and we don't need God, when sociologists tell us that there are no absolutes and the Ten Commandments can be cast aside, when politicians draw up laws which contradict the sacred and holy scriptures, when theologians tell us that all religions are the same and there is nothing unique about the Christian faith, and when people live their lives in utter defiance against the laws of God and the word of God, we must understand that what is happening there is the outworking of this rebellion against God. That's what it is. That is what we are seeing in all of those things. The outworking of the rebellion of human nature against God. Man is at war with God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 8 for a moment. I want you to have your Bibles at the ready so you can look at some of these profoundly important passages. Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul says, beginning at verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, and by that he means those who live in accordance with the dictates of an unregenerate, unrenewed nature. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded. Now that doesn't necessarily mean to be you know, always thinking about sexually immoral things. It doesn't mean to be debauched necessarily in your mind. It simply means to be not spiritually minded. It means to be earthly minded, to be naturally minded. Alright, to be carnally minded, says Paul, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Notice verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 7 is one of the most fundamental truths of the Bible. Those who are carnally minded, the carnal mind, says Paul, is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed, says Paul, can it be. It is impossible for the natural mind to be subject to the law of God. Why? Because it has within it a principle of rebellion, of sin against God. And so human nature, apart from the grace of God, apart from the restraint of the grace of God, manifests its rebellion, and that's what we're seeing today. Furthermore, human nature, apart from the grace of God, is blind to true reality. Blind to true reality. One of the most frequent figures used in the New Testament for the unconverted, unsaved man or woman is the word blindness. Jesus uses himself, Matthew 15, 14. He said, if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into the ditch. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 when he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. John uses it in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 11. He who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness 
has blinded his eyes. Blindness is a biblical figure to speak about the mental outlook, spiritually speaking, of those who are without Christ. People without the Holy Spirit, who is the divine illuminator, are blind to true reality. And we see it all around us in our day. And that's why you have people saying AIDS is not a moral issue, it's a health issue. Now that has become the slogan of the homosexual community and of those who are basically in support of that perspective. This has become a slogan. AIDS is not a moral issue, it is a health issue and there is nothing so blatantly and foolishly wrong as that. AIDS is a moral issue if it's anything at all. Of course it's a health issue. Of course it's that. And of course there are those who are innocent sufferers now of AIDS. Those who receive blood transfusions and, and even innocent children in the mother's womb and so on. Of course that's true, tragically true. It is a health issue. But to say that AIDS is not a moral issue is to reveal a spiritual and moral blindness that is profound. AIDS has arisen because of an immoral lifestyle. It has arisen because of sexual promiscuity. AIDS is with us because men and women have defied and refused to agree to God's moral boundaries and directives and restraints. Of course, it is a moral issue. It is the height of nonsense to say it is not a moral issue. But I suggest to you that this is one of the ways in which this blindness to true reality is revealing itself in our society. It's one of the most evident indicators of this. That is why people in our generation do not see any relationship between the brutality, the increasing brutality in our society, increasing brutality against children, for instance. They see no relation to this and to the criminal brutality of abortion in which children are butchered in the wombs. They see no relationship to these things. There's a blindness there. This is why people don't see any relationship between the undermining of home life, lawlessness among young people, loss of common decency and even courtesy. I heard someone on a radio talk show just a week or two ago say, uh, oh, wasn't it nice, in reference to a certain person who showed a little bit of good manners, wasn't it nice to see someone still in our day with good manners? Why are we living in a day like this? Why is it that courtesy, common courtesy, seems to be going out the window? And homes are breaking up and lawlessness is abounding. Our lawmakers and our politicians and our philosophers and sociologists see no relationship between what's happening in those areas and the undermining of the Christian faith that's been going on for so long. You see no relationship between those two things. That is because there is a blindness. A blindness which is a revelation of the state of human nature apart from the grace of God. And furthermore, there is a hardness in unbelief. Human nature is hardened in its unbelief apart from the grace of God. Left to itself, human nature rejects Christ. Left to itself, human nature rejects God, rejects salvation, rejects the overtures of mercy. Left to itself, that's what it does. There is a sad, and I would 
be tempted to say a pitiful naivety amongst many evangelicals in these days in which we live which tells them that if only they use the right methods if only they go about things in the right way if only they use the right little booklets if only they just have the right atmosphere and the right approach that people can be easily won to the Lord Jesus Christ the fact is from the biblical perspective that apart from an intervention of divine grace apart from the supernatural operation of the Spirit of God no one will turn to Christ human nature left to itself in spite of all of our endeavours rejects the gospel we have to understand that and we have to see I believe that the words of our Lord Jesus Christ are being demonstrated again and again he said this is the condemnation that light has come into the world but men love darkness rather than light and we see it happening again and again the embracing of darkness and the rejection of light because human nature when left to itself apart from the grace of God is rebellious against God is blind to true reality and is hardened in its unbelief now we need to understand that we, if we want to understand the times in which we live we have to see that we have a revelation of what human nature is like that's what it's like don't have any false naive romantic ideas about what human nature is like apart from God's grace that's what it's like rebellious against God blind to true reality and hardened in unbelief. Now in the second place I think we are having in these days a revelation of the weak state of the church. And I mean the church of God generally of which we are a part and so we're not excused from, from this observation. The church of Christ has never had so much technology at its disposal as today. The church of Christ has never had so much money at its disposal as it has today. The Church of Christ has never, or seldom at least, enjoyed the amount of freedom that it enjoys today. And yet, in spite of all of that, the Church makes so little impact upon the day in which we live. Now, what is the problem? What is the problem? What is the Church suffering from? I want to suggest three things to you. The Church is suffering from a lack of spiritual discernment. It's suffering from a lack of spiritual discernment. Large segments, large segments, perhaps in the Western world, the largest segments of our church, the church of Jesus Christ, is running after religious excitement in the day in which we live. Tongues and prophecies, visions and revelations, these are the things that are sought after by people panting and gasping after religious excitement. Signs and wonders is the watchword now of a great new evangelistic movement in the United States that seems to be sweeping through evangelicalism. Signs and wonders is the name of the game. We have come to a place of what I call religious thrill-seeking. Religious thrill-seeking. Men and women desiring in religion to get a high, to have thrills and thrilling experiences. And yet, while all of this is going on while all of this is going on 
the churches are filled with people who are doctrinally as ignorant as can be. People have been in churches for 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, and all they can tell you is that I accepted Jesus and Jesus loves me. Now I'm not knocking that. Not at all. That's important to have accepted Jesus and that Jesus loves us is a profound and glorious truth. But my dear friends, we have to go beyond that, don't we? We have to go beyond that. I have been in this church long enough to have watched families growing up. That's one of the good things about a long ministry, that you begin to really get to know people. And eventually you become, get to become uh, the father of the people. Well, that's not around yet. That's not here yet, but it's coming, I suppose, you know. But you get to see people grow up. I've seen people, I, I, there are young people here, I won't embarrass them by pointing them out, but there are young people sitting here right now, and I held them in my arms as babies. I saw them born. Now, if I were to go now, after 15 years, to a home where children were born into that home, I were to go back now and I still saw them running around in diapers, you know, and asking for their bottle and needing their afternoon nap, I'd say, boy, oh boy, something is profoundly and tragically wrong here, right? These children never grow up. They never get any muscle on them. They never get any stature to them. They never become mature. This is, this is a tragedy. And yet the churches are full of people. They're there for year after year after year and they know nothing in terms of the teaching of the Word of God. Oh, they'll run after excitement and they'll want their thrills, but they're ignorant of the truth. What do they know of the great truth of justification by faith? which Martin Luther says was the article of a falling or standing church. You could tell whether a church was falling or standing, said Luther, by whether they understood and embraced that doctrine. Half of our people in evangelical churches, what about this church? Couldn't really explain it to anybody. Do people realize that the cause of their salvation is the electing grace of a sovereign God? Most of the evangelical world know nothing about that. And when they do, they begin to protest against it and fight against it. Do people understand what they mean when they talk about Jesus dying for me? Do they understand what the atonement's all about? What the word propitiation means? What the whole idea of substitution is? Do they really understand the glory of the atonement? Do they appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit as he applies the redemption to God's elect? Do they understand effectual calling? I'm not saying they have to know the terminology, but do they understand how the Spirit of God operates and works in the lives of people and draws them to Jesus Christ? Do they know anything about the biblical teaching on holiness and on discipleship and obedience and all of these glorious things? You see, the church needs to dig again the wells of doctrinal truth which have been plugged up by the sand of neglect and ignorance over the years. We need to dig out those wells again. Oh, says someone in the congregation, you know, the pastor, he, just, he wants everybody to be a systematic theologian. He wants everybody to be a theologian. No, 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 I'm not talking about that. But you see, my friends, it is truth that transforms. When will we ever learn that? 
It's not rushing round after visions and revelations and speaking in tongues that transforms people. It is truth that transforms people. James Kennedy, the well-known Presbyterian pastor in America, wrote a book that he called Truths That Transform. And he was bang on. It's a good book. It is when the truths of the Word of God grip our hearts and fill our understandings and our lives begin to be transformed. It's when we begin to read and to know and to see Christ in His Word that were changed from glory to glory. It is truth, it is doctrine, it is teaching that transforms people. And we have cluttered up our churches with wood, hay and stubble and we don't have the discernment to see it. That's the tragedy of the modern church, I believe. A weak church, lack of spiritual discernment and then it has a lack of true spirituality. Church of God has a lack of true spirituality. You see, we confound spirituality with talent and ability. We confound spirituality with activity. We confound spirituality with charisma. And I'm using that with a small c. Not in technical or theological sense. Charisma. Personality. Somebody has a strong, powerful, charismatic type personality and he's active, we say, oh, he's a spiritual man. Maybe not. What do we know about brokenness before God? That's what I would like to know. What do modern Christians know about brokenness before God? David said, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, O God, these thou wilt not despise. What do we know about that today? What do we know about dwelling in the secret place with God? Really, Christian friends, what do we know about that? He that dwelleth, said David, in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. What do we know about that anymore? What do we know about humility? What do we know about sensitivity to sin? What do we know about genuine repentance? What do we know about prayerfulness? What do we know about love to God and love to our fellow believers? See, we live in a world which thirsts for the dramatic. We live in a world that thirsts for the sensation. Increasingly it's been so. It just jumps into my mind. You might find this a strange uh, reference, but I was watching the news just the other night, just two or three nights ago, and they were talking about the... Um, Oscars, the Hollywood Oscars, the big show that's to come and all the rest of it. And uh, they made this observation. They said, uh, when this began, it began with just a dignified supper. And they showed an old black and white picture of all the quote stars gathered together in a very dignified place there, the supper. And they said, now it's become a great glitzy, and they use about four of the adjectives in our great big breathing circus. As any of you have seen it, I would trust only for a few minutes, I couldn't take much more than that, but if you ever seen it, you know what it's like. All the hype, all the glitz and glamour, and supposedly all the rest of it. We're increasingly an age that strives after the dramatic and the sensational, and that's rubbed up on the church, unfortunately. But I want to tell you something, friends. True spirituality doesn't make a fuss. True spirituality doesn't draw attention to itself. 
True spirituality doesn't make a big clamor and a big noise. It walks softly and humbly with its God. And we don't know too much about it. And furthermore, the church of Christ is suffering from a superficial experience of God. Because we know so little of the glory of God. Because we have perceived so little of the profound depths of the love of God. Because we have grasped so feebly the worthiness of God. Because these things are so, we've had such a superficial experience of Him. We lack the zeal that ought to characterize our lives to know Him more. The zeal to know Him more deeply and more profoundly. And our churches are full of people with a very small appetite for God. Our churches are full of people with a small appetite for God. And therefore our zeal to serve Him is correspondingly small. And we need to understand that. That the times in which we live are a revelation of a weak church. We need to know that. And there's a third thing I want to suggest to you. In understanding the times that they are a revelation of the wrath of God. They are a revelation of the wrath of God. It is my personal conviction that we can never understand the 20th century and especially this latter part of it if we do not recognize that God's wrath is being manifested in society. We will never understand the day in which we live. Perhaps we have a mindset, you see, that has taught us to think of God's wrath as only being revealed at the last day. Now, that of course is true. But I want you to go back to the passage that Don read this morning in Romans chapter 1. Just go back to Romans 1 for a minute. And read again the 18th verse of Romans 1, noting carefully what the Apostle Paul says, and remembering that here is one of the holy men of God who moved, who wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this is the Spirit of God speaking to us. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. And I think the New International Version translated is being revealed, which is certainly legitimate translation of the Greek present tense. The wrath of God is revealed, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, Paul does not only see the wrath of God as something that's stored up, he does see it as that, he speaks of that in Romans 2, for the end of the age, but he sees God's wrath as something that is being revealed in his own day. And the reality is that the wrath of God is revealed in an ongoing way throughout human history against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. How is the wrath of God being revealed in our present day? First of all, by the fact that he is hiding his face from his church to take up the point that we've just been discussing. He's hiding his face from his church and I'm using the terminology of Ezekiel chapter 39 that I referred to last Sunday evening very, very briefly. In Ezekiel 39 and 23 we read, The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. Because they were unfaithful to me, therefore I hid my face from them. Because they were unfaithful to me, therefore I hid my face from them. God does hide his face from his people. 
There are times when this happens. There are times when God withdraws himself, as it were, from his church. He hides his face. And when he does it, not all the activity, not all the scholarship, not all the personality, not all of the programs in the world can rectify the situation when God hides his face from his church. Why does he do it? Ezekiel tells us in 39.23 because they were unfaithful. Because of our unfaithfulness. Because of the coldness of our hearts towards God. Because of our indifference towards spiritual things. Because of our worldliness and our sinfulness. Because of our abusing of God's privileges. That's why he hides his face from us. And leaves us to our own impotence and hopelessness. Until we learn. This is what we have in Revelation 3, 14 through 22, of course. In the famous letter uh, of, from Christ, the risen Christ to the church at Laodicea. This is exactly what we have. Christ withdrawing himself. The famous 20th verse of Revelation 3, remember, is written not to unbelievers but to professing Christians. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I have no objection at all to that verse being used evangelistically, but I point out to you that in the context it is spoken to a church. It's addressed to professing Christians. And here is the tragic and unbelievable sight of Revelation 3, of the last of these letters, that Christ himself is outside the church. That's the terrible vision that we've got here. Christ himself, the head of the church, the Lord of the church, is outside the church. Now the church doesn't know it. The church thinks everything's wonderful. In Revelation 3, you know, they think everything's tremendous. Verse 17, Because you say, says Jesus, I am rich, and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you, says Jesus. Well, the church thought everything was wonderful. Things were going on as normal. The programs were in place. The personalities were all there. The crowds were gathering. And our Lord says, listen, I'm outside this church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Where there are those here and there who will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. But he's hiding his face from them. And I believe that Christ is hiding his face from the church today in very large measure as a revelation of his wrath and displeasure. But there's another way in which the wrath of God is revealed in this day in our society and it is in giving people over to their sinful lusts. The wrath of God is revealed in our society by God giving people over to their sinful lusts. And this is why I asked Don to read Romans 1, 18 through 32. If ever there was a chapter that ought to be familiar with Christians certainly and one would hope perhaps with all men. Let me tell you what I've been thinking the last few days. Maybe it would be a challenge to someone. I wondered whether we could not get Romans 1, 18 through 32 printed in the Hamilton Spectator. 
Now it would cost us a, it, quite a lot of money. It would cost us a mince. It, you know, to put an, an advert in of this size and we advertise our anniversary costs us $200. An advert like this. Are there any folk here who over and above their regular offerings would say, listen, I'll contribute towards this. I think we should put this in the Hamilton Spectator. Romans 1, 18 through 32. It is the most relevant passage for our modern society one could ever imagine. Christians ought to be thoroughly familiar with this passage and the world out there needs to be familiar with it as well. It is, a, it is a horrific passage, if you like. It makes me tremble when I read it. It's a passage that perhaps we don't even like to read in public. But if you want to understand what's happening to 20th century society, at the end of the 20th century, brother, you better read this passage. If you want to understand the flood of sexual perversion that is overwhelming the nation in which we live, read this passage. And what this passage is telling us is this, that when men and women reject the light that God gives them, when they set themselves against that which God provides for them and repudiate it, God gives them up. God gives them up. That's what he says in verse 24. He's discussing the pagan world of his day. Therefore, he says, they having rejected the light, they having deliberately turned from it, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. These who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then again he says it in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, so that even the women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, and the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. You want to know why the perversions of our day which were unheard of just 30 years ago in terms at least of society at large. They were on the fringe of society. They were the whispered things of society. Why are these things now running over society? Because God is giving the society up to their own lusts and to their own vile passions. God is as it were throwing the reins on the neck and saying, all right, go with it and have your own way. And this is the most horrific thing imaginable. This is the wrath of God in operation, my dear friends. God giving them up. He says it a third time in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Listen, when people deliberately reject the light, what they get is darkness. The result of people throwing off the constraints of God is not liberty, it is bondage. That's what this generation is learning the hard way. Liberty, they said, you see, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, cast off the restraints, they were saying. We want liberty, we want freedom, but to cast off the restraints of God doesn't bring liberty, it brings bondage. The results of people 
Defying God's word is not joy but weeping. The result of people refusing God's directives in Holy Scripture is not life, my friends, but death. This is what our generation doesn't understand. This is what will not go through in the blindness of their minds, you see. But the wrath of God, says Paul, is revealed in God giving men over, giving society up to their own selves, to their own vile passions, to their own debased minds. It's God throwing the reins, as I said, on the net and letting them go. We need to understand that you can't understand the times in which we live if you don't understand these passages of Scripture. And there's one other that I want to direct you to. For the wrath of God, I believe, is revealed in God delivering people over to a lie as a judgment for their refusal to receive and love the truth. It is God giving people over to the lie as a judgment for their refusal to receive the love of the truth. Turn with me to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I don't know what's the most scurry passage in the New Testament. I don't know which is the most scurry. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. Or Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Look at it, Second Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Now what Paul is telling the Christians of his day is that which is going to develop and happen as the end of the age draws near. And he speaks in verses 3 and 4 about the arising of one he calls the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. One who is going to, in verse 4, oppose and exalt himself above all that's called God and show himself that he is God. He speaks about the restraining of all of this in God's purpose. But he says in verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one, says Paul, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders. You see, extraordinary things Signs and wonders are not necessarily the indication of a work of God. Here is a work of Satan going on here. And this is with, says Paul, signs and lying wonders and power. Notice verse 10. And with all unrighteous deception amongst those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now notice verse 11. One of the scariest verses in the Bible. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Man, that is the most sobering statement. Do we picture God as wringing his hands and stamping his feet in frustration with our generation and mopping his brow and saying, you know, I'm doing everything I can do and yet these people are not coming. I just don't know what to do. My dear friend, that's not what Paul says here, is it? 
Paul says that God himself, not the devil, he'll use the devil, but God himself will send them a strong delusion. God will do that. God will do that. The God of love will do that. God, says Paul, will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. How much you say, doesn't God desire the salvation of sinners? Yes, He does. But my dear friend, when God's word is repudiated deliberately, and when sinners deliberately reject the truth and refuse the light and continue to refuse it and insist on it being rejected from them and from their society, as long as men do that, God reserves himself the right to confirm them in their sin, to confirm them in their hardness, to confirm them in their wretched condition, and he'll even send them a delusion that they might believe the lie and be condemned because, he says, they would not receive the truth, but they had pleasure in unrighteousness. They did not receive the love of the truth, in verse 10, that they might be saved. And in our day, when we see people clamoring after the cults, embracing the religion of the New Age movement, embracing all these Eastern mystical cults and so forth, what are we seeing? Is God helpless? Is God wringing his hands and saying, Oh my, I wish that they would follow me. In one sense he is calling with open arms and saying, Come unto me. Yes, he is doing that. But all oh, the sobering revelation of this passage that tells us that when people reject the truth consistently and perversely, God will send them a strong delusion. And they'll believe a lie and they'll never come to the truth and God will condemn them and they'll be lost forever brother that's scary that's frightening but you see you cannot understand the times in which we live unless we recognize that we are seeing a revelation of the wrath of God in sending a strong delusion to those who refuse the truth in giving men over to their own vile passions in those who reject the light. And even in hiding his face from a disobedient and unfaithful church. You can't understand the times in which we live unless you have some insight and understanding to these tremendously profound passages. The men of Issachar they had understanding of their times. Do we have understanding of our times? You know, a lot of Christians are thrown, you see. A lot of Christians are thrown, they're upset, they're troubled because they say, hey, if the Christian religion is real, if God is real, if Christ is on the throne, how come all of this chaos and confusion is going on around? Ah, we need to be like the men of Issachar, you see, who have understanding of the times. Because God is giving us in these days a revelation of what human nature is really like apart from the grace of God. He's giving us the revelation of a weak church, rich, powerful, but weak spiritually. 
and he's giving us a revelation of his wrath at work in human society but the men of Issachar also knew what to do and I'm not going to preach the second part of the sermon because it takes too long I'm just going to give you three words three words what are we to do